Well, this morning I do have the privilege of introducing Dr. Stephen Ewell to preach to us. I know uh, I can say from a pastoral standpoint, the pastors uh, have had this date circled on our calendar for some time, knowing that uh, you were coming to preach. So thank you, brother, for coming. Uh, Dr. Stephen Ewell, when he's not preaching somewhere in Ontario, usually at Redemption Bible Chapel, uh, he, he will attend here with his family. Uh, at the 9 a.m. service, so if you're at, usually at the 11, you might not have seen him, and he usually wears a mask, obviously, so this might be a special treat to see his full face uh, today up here preaching. But uh, Stephen is married to Allison. They have two daughters, Emma and Laura. Uh, Emma is at home today recovering from a bit of a toboggan accident, so Emma, I hope you feel better uh, the, later on this today as you, as you heal. But uh, Stephen Ewell has, has done many things in, in ministry. Uh, he was a missionary in Portugal, a missionary in Angola. Uh, he was a pastor for a number of years in Texas, a uh, pastor here in Ontario as well. Currently, he is the vice president of academics. Let me get this right. Vice president of academics at Heritage College and Seminary just down the road. And he's also an associate professor at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So we're delighted to have Stephen Ewell with us. Uh, if you are, have free time later on today or through the week, doctor, I don't know where uh, Dr. Ewell finds the time. As regular men have 24 hours in a day, he somehow has cobbled together a few extra hours. But he runs a website uh, called godforus.org. Uh, it's worth uh, going to that site, checking out some of his ramblings, as he calls them, or his blogs. Uh, fantastic articles, fantastic pieces that are just steeped in Puritan theology and in the scripture, worthy of a read. Uh, and you can also access some of his sermons and, and a few of his books as well. So with that, I want to give you an opportunity to win uh, his, one of his books called Longing for Home. It's really easy how to be entered into this draw. Here's what you need to do. If you're watching live with us today, all you need to do is type in a comment in the comment section or the chat function that's over on the right-hand side of your screen. You can say hello uh, you can say amen where it's appropriate, however you want. If you put a uh, comment in, you're going to be entered into in. Now, if you're not watching live and you're watching it on YouTube, here's what you need to do. You just need to go to the comment section below and just leave a comment. If you're watching somewhere, somewhere in the world or somewhere in Canada, we'd love to know where you're watching from. So just put your, where you're watching from and, and you'll be entered the draw. If your name's selected, we'll mail you this book or we'll give it to you when we see you again. So with that, Dr. Stephen Ewell. Well, thanks, Brian, and good morning to the few who are here, and to the many, I trust the many who are at home tuning in and watching this morning. I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to the book of Nahum. It's a little tricky to find right before the book of Habakkuk, if that helps. Just start fingering through the minor prophets, and you will eventually land on the book of Nahum. Uh, before we get there, I want to begin with a little quiz. This is a quiz which was first brought to my attention maybe two years ago, and it has served me well over the years, and I've actually used it on a couple of occasions at Heritage College and Seminary. And so I want to put you through this quiz this morning, pretty straightforward, nothing tricky about it, but just answer these questions, as I put them to you, and you can just answer in your own mind. You can raise your hand if you're so inclined, but here they are. Do you believe God is good and does good? Question number two, do you believe God is the blessed 
and only sovereign. Question number three, do you believe God possesses all authority in heaven and in earth? Do you believe God is faithful? Do you believe God is all wise and knows what is best for us? Do you believe God is a loving heavenly Father? Do you believe God works all things together for good? Now, I am going to assume, and I think this is a fairly safe assumption, that the vast majority of us, perhaps all of us here and those at home watching, uh, you would say, yes, 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 yes. You would check off all of those questions. Uh, you would recognize immediately that each of those statements is simply lifted straight from Scripture, and you would affirm, you would confess, you would state wholeheartedly, yes, I believe. I believe God is good and does good. I believe God is the blessed and only sovereign. I believe God is faithful. I believe God is all-knowing and knows what is best for us, and on and on and on and on it goes. Very good. Now, here's another series of questions, and you answer these carefully, again, just in your own mind. Do you ever lie awake at night worrying about something? Here we go, question number two. Do you ever feel envy or anger or bitterness towards someone? Number three. Does discouragement and disappointment ever get the better of you? Number four. Do you and your spouse or perhaps your sibling ever bicker? Number five. Do you struggle with discontent? Number six, do you grumble and murmur when things don't go your way? Number seven, do you ever lose your cool? Now, you take your answers. I'll take my answers to that first group of questions. Yes, 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 yes. I believe in this God. I believe in the God of Scripture. I believe that He's the blessed and only sovereign. I believe that He abounds in goodness. He is good. He does good. I believe He's faithful. I believe He works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I affirm it. I confess it. I believe it. And yet at the same time, if you're anything like me, as you go through that second group of questions, you find yourself checking the boxes. Yes, there are times, more times than I care to admit, that I lie awake on my bed at night tossing and turning, worrying about some person or something. Yes, I admit there are times I struggle with discontent. There are times I grumble. There are times I murmur. Yes, I admit there are times I struggle with disillusionment and discouragement, and it gets the better of me. And over time, as I have worked through this quiz, do you know what I have realized about myself? And perhaps you're realizing it about yourself at this very moment. Here it is. Far too often, more than I care to admit, and yet here I am admitting it publicly, the God of Scripture is merely the God of my imagination. He is not the God of my reality. As I work through those questions, I discover that far too often the God of Scripture is merely the God of my imagination, and He is not the God of my reality. You know where I've seen this of late? I have seen it this past week as I have anticipated the next lockdown. I have discovered that as I have faced this lockdown, the God of Scripture has not been the God of my reality. 
He has merely been the God of my imagination. I have found myself grumbling and murmuring to myself. I have found sort of that dark heaviness setting in and beginning to weigh upon my mind and upon my heart. I have found myself discouraged and down in the dumps. And the only thing I can conclude is this, the God of Scripture, the one I say I believe in for the past few days, for the past week, really has been nothing more than the God of my imagination. He has not been the God of my reality. I've been convinced the older I get, I'm not that old, but I'm getting older, and I'm convinced the older I get that one of the great objectives of the Christian faith and one of the greatest roles and responsibilities, if I might put it like that, of the Christian journey is simply this. It is to close the gap between the God of our imagination and the God of our reality. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. Last Sunday of 2020, and many of us are thinking to ourselves, goodbye and good riddance, don't let the door hit you on the way out. 2020. 2021 coming around the corner. And if I look back on 2020, I see this confirmed, this gap that exists in my imagination versus my reality. And as we are now about to embark on 2021, we need a good New Year's resolution. Well, here's a great resolution resolved to close, to narrow the gap between the God of my imagination and the God of my reality. Nahum's going to help us do that. That might shock you. I actually find it a bit shocking. If you've read the book of Nahum recently, you'll discover that it is quite disappointing and discouraging. It is all hellfire and brimstone. I mean, Nahum, he is prophesying, he is proclaiming that God's judgment is about to come on the city of Nineveh. Uh, Jonah had prophesied against the city of Nineveh a hundred years earlier, and the Ninevites had repented, and God had withheld His judgment. But here we are almost a century later, and Nahum again has taken up this torch. He is proclaiming this message that God's judgment is coming. There will be no turning back. And sure enough, I think it's in the year 612, something like that, the Babylonians invade, they sweep away the Ninevites destruction and desolation. I mean, look at how the book opens, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. It's a terrible book. It is an overwhelming book. It is a discouraging and depressing book, alarming book as we come face to face with the wrath and the judgment of God. And yet in the midst of the book, there is a verse that stands out like a massive rock in the midst of the raging sea. It stands out like a beacon of light penetrating the overwhelming darkness. And it's right there in chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Three very simple observations. Observation number one, you can guess what it is. Opening statement, the Lord is good. He is 
goodness itself. Scripture compares God to life, light, food, water, rest, home, health, peace, fire, wealth, honor, wine, joy, pleasure. Scripture is trying to communicate a very simple yet profound, in a way, very simple yet profound message. The Lord is good, goodness itself. He is good in all that He says. We call that His truthfulness. He is good in all that He does. It's known as His faithfulness. He is good in His condemnation and judgment of sinners. That's His righteousness. And He is good in His salvation of penitent sinners. That is His loving kindness. He is goodness itself. Everything testifies to it. As we look around at the created realm, we see His goodness everywhere. James celebrates, James 1, 17, I think it is, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation, nor shadow due to change. We see the evidence of it. We see His goodness in creation. At the end of the creation narrative, right there at the end of chapter 1, what do we read? The Lord saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. There is His goodness on full display in His work of creation. We see His goodness on full display in His work of providence. The psalmist celebrates that God is good to all. His mercy is over all His works. He sends the sun and the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous, and far eclipsing His goodness as revealed in His work of creation, and far eclipsing His goodness as revealed in His work of providence. We see His goodness revealed in His work of redemption. And so Paul writes those tremendous words to Titus, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It is Jesus Christ Himself, the personification of goodness and loving kindness. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He rescued us. He redeemed us. Oh, the Lord is good. You just think for a moment as of His goodness as revealed in the plan of redemption, this great work of salvation. And, and Christian, I am speaking to believers. I trust we appreciate this in its fullness today. Uh, the Lord was good to you. God the Father. God the Father was good to you when He set His love upon you before the foundation of the world. Oh, God the Father was good to you when He chose you in Christ, apart from any merit in you. God the Son was good to you when He incarnated. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was good to you when He humbled Himself, took the form of a servant, was obedient even to the point of death, and there upon Calvary's cross became a curse for us. Oh, the God the Son was good to you when He redeemed you, rescued you, washing you in His blood. 
God the Spirit was good to you when He caused you to be born again through a living hope, when He removed those scales from off your eyes so that you might behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, when He turned your heart towards Him, when He caused you to see, when He enlightened your mind and empowered your will to believe in the Lord Jesus and receive Him as Lord and Savior. Oh, the Lord is good. God triune is good to you right now. He is good to you because He has promised you that He will guard you, keep you, preserve you through faith by His power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. God triune is good to you right now because He has promised that all things work together for our good, to those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. Oh, the psalmist declares, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's observation number one. Here's observation number two. Straight out of the verse, the Lord is good. We got it. Number two, the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. What's the day of trouble? We might be thinking to ourselves of some circumstance, some unpleasant circumstance, unfortunate circumstance that we're passing through at present. And in a sense, I I won't deny that. But when you look at the context and you look at the book as a whole, the day of trouble that is in view is very specific. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of wrath. It is a day of condemnation. Twice in the book of Nahum, the Lord declares, these are frightening words. These are among the most frightening words in Scripture. Twice He declares, behold, I am against you. That is the day of trouble. Behold, I am against you. And it is spoken specifically of the Ninevites in their historical context. And I submit to you, it is spoken generally of every human being who has ever darkened the earth. Behold, I am against you. He's against us because of our trespasses. We all know what a trespass is. We're driving along a country road, and there on the side, on the fence, or perhaps posted on no trespassing. And if we were to pull over our car, hop over the fence, and enter that piece of property, what are we doing at that moment? We are trespassing. Well, God is against us because of our trespasses. In His Word, He falls closest to the white ball. The trick is this, though. Those black balls, they're weighted on one side. I don't know if it's lead or what it is they put in those things. But whatever side the weight is on, that is the direction the ball is going to go. And so you throw it with the weight on the right, that ball is going to bend three or four feet to the right. It's just the way it is. You cannot stop it. You can try a hundred times to throw that ball straight. You will never be able to throw it straight. That is us. That is iniquity. We are naturally inclined to self-love. We are lovers. And for six, seven, eight months of the year, it wasn't really a river. It was just a dry river basin a bunch of rocks. You could walk right in the middle of it, maybe find a puddle here or there. But then the thunderstorms would come in April, May, and in one night, tread the dam. But eventually that point comes where the dam can no longer withhold the force of that water. And it surges forth 
sweeping away all that is in its path. Oh, Paul warns us of this day, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath and righteous indignation of the Lord. That is the day of trouble. But what did we sing just a few moments ago? Rock of ages, rock of ages, cleft for me. Danger. Somewhere down in the States, one of the state parks or maybe national parks, after a forest fire had swept through, this park ranger was out hiking, surveying the damage. And as he was walking along, he came across this bird. I can't remember what kind of bird it was. Just its charred remains lying there on the floor. And he had a stick in his hand. He just sort of absentmindedly flipped over the charred remains of this bird and out scurried from underneath these charred remains three, four little chicks alive and well. Why? Because when the fire had swept through, that mother bird, whatever it was, had gathered those chicks under her, and there was refuge from the fire raging above. Oh, the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. The Lord, through His provision of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, at Calvary's cross, where the Lord Jesus bore the penalty for our sin in full, and the Lord Jesus bore God's wrath in full, that we might go free. And that this good God might indeed be our stronghold in the day of trouble. That's the second observation. Now look quickly at the third observation, the rest of the verse. The Lord knows those who take refuge in Him. It might strike you as an odd statement at first. The Lord knows those who take refuge in Him. You might read that and think to yourself immediately, but isn't God omniscient? Doesn't God know everyone? God knows people in one of two ways. God knows everyone factually. He is indeed omniscient. He knows absolutely every single person who has ever lived, currently living, will ever live. He numbers the very hairs upon every head. But secondly, the Lord knows some relationally. It is not the same knowledge. There is a factual knowledge of people, yes, But there is a relational knowledge of a very specific, limited, restricted group of people. Who are they? Those who take refuge in Him. And so Paul writes to the Galatians chapter 4, that when the fullness of time had come, we've been celebrating it this Christmas season, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth. Forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He doesn't stop there. He goes on and he adds a wonderful statement. You have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. His knowledge of His own is not merely factual. It is relational. He has taken us as His own. He has claimed us for His own. He has adopted us into His family. An old Baptist preacher from centuries ago put it as follows. You are a Christian. One highly beloved. 
who has found favor with God. This means he is intimately acquainted with our persons, our conditions, our problems, our needs, our struggles, our sufferings. It means he is intimately acquainted with our past, our present, our future. It means that he declares over us in the language of Isaiah 43, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. And you are mine. The Lord knows those who take refuge in him. And that is observation number three. Put them all together and you have a tremendous declaration. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. There's the God of Scripture. And the great question, or rather let me put it this way. The great dilemma is this. Is this God of Scripture merely the God of our imagination? Or is He the God of our daily reality? When the God of Scripture, this God, when He is the God of our reality, there will be faith. You think of David, King David, and you think of all that he went through and the struggles he encountered. You think of the years, the time he spent fleeing from Saul. Or you think of the turmoil and the tumult within his own household. And Absalom's rebellion and all that David suffered and struggled with. And in the midst of it all, Psalm 9 verse 10, he could declare those who know your name. Put their trust in you. Those who know the Lord is good. Put their trust in you. You think of the little guy, three years of age. It's time for dad to take him out and teach him how to skate. And so mom's watching, and so dad dutifully puts on the helmet, puts on the elbow pads, the knee pads on that little tyke, Tommy, let's call him, and off they go to the rink for a skate. And he's got him, he's holding him up under the arms, obviously, Tommy's skates are barely touching the surface, and they're just going merrily around the rink. And Tommy having a great time, full confidence, full trust in his father. Why? Because his father can skate like Wayne Gretzky? It doesn't hurt. That his father has that kind of ability, undoubtedly that helps Tommy trust his father. Because his father is as strong as an NFL linebacker, powerful, yes, undoubtedly that helps Tommy trust his father. But far eclipsing these, his ability or his power or his wisdom or his knowledge or his experience, the number one reason why Tommy trusts his father is simply this, he is convinced that the man is good. And he has his best interests in view. Yes, our God is all-powerful. Amen. Yes, he is the blessed and only sovereign. Amen. Even among Baptist circles, hallelujah. Put two hands up. That's okay. Yes, we believe he is all-knowing. He is all-wise. But the number one reason we trust God is this. He is good. And he abounds in goodness to his people. When the God of Scripture is the God of our reality, there will be faith, there will be trust. Secondly, when the God of Scripture is the God of our reality, there will be hope. 
You think of Abraham, and you think of that promise he received concerning a son, and the fact that he would be the father of a great nation. And Abraham, considering his own body, he was an old man, and Sarah, not much younger. And yet, what do we read in Romans 4, 18? In hope, against hope. So against hope, that is against his circumstances and what his circumstances declared. Yet in hope, because he knew his God, and he trusted in his God who is good, Abraham believed. And when we know this good God, And when this good God is the God of our reality, there will be hope. Hope and confidence in all that He has promised us. Thirdly, when the God of Scripture is the God of our reality, there will be repentance. You think of Peter having denied the Lord Jesus for a third time. And the rooster crowing. And we read in Luke 22, isn't it, that as the rooster crowed for the third time, the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Just a look. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Judas never repented. Judas knew nothing of the Lord's goodness. But Peter, one look from the Lord Jesus Christ, the personification of goodness and loving kindness. Oh, it broke him. It melted his heart. And the repentance for his sin flowed from that. Oh, when the God of Scripture is the God of our reality, there will be heartfelt repentance for sin. And fourthly, when the God of Scripture is the God of our reality, there will be perseverance. And so think of Job. We need to look no further than Job. And all that that man went through. And all that he lost. His family and his possessions and his health. All disappearing before him. Vanishing like a mist as the sun rises in the sky and burns it away. And in the midst of it all, he declares, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The only reason Job can say that is because he's convinced of God's goodness. Despite his circumstances declaring the contrary, Job trusted in a good God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the perseverance and the endurance of Job. We will struggle with that one. We will struggle with that one as Christians our whole lives if we are convinced that good is determined by the interests of the body rather than the welfare of the soul. Until we realize this, and until we take it to heart, that our good and what God perceives to be good for us is not determined by the interest of the body, but the welfare of the soul, we'll never get it. Oh, but when we understand that our God is good, And we really understand that he has promised to work all things together for good, even this lockdown, even COVID-19, even whatever else we're going through presently. He has promised to work it all together for our good, our spiritual welfare. Oh, the Spirit of God takes that and stirs perseverance within us. Here's the fifth result. When the God of Scripture is the God of our reality. 
there will be obedience. And so recall for a few moments, Joseph, there he is far from home, far from father. There he is in a land, the land of Egypt, unknown to him, serving in Potiphar's house, his home. There is Potiphar's wife coming to him, tempting him. If he had succumbed to the temptation, what would he have lost? There was no father watching over him. There was no accountability. I don't doubt for one moment he could have gotten away from it with it. And yet Joseph, a man convinced of God's goodness, what was his response as he faced that temptation and sin against God? Oh, we will never obey if we do not love him. And we will never love him if we're not convinced of his goodness. And we will not be convinced of his goodness if the God of Scripture remains the God of our imagination and not the God of our reality. It is when we are overwhelmed by his goodness and this kindles love for him that from that love flows obedience and from that love flows the power to resist temptation. And here's the sixth, when the God of Scripture is the God of our reality, there will be contentment. And so Paul is languishing in a prison cell in Rome, right? And he writes to the Philippian believers, and he has the absolute audacity. I don't know what else to call it. Chapter 4, verse 10, verse 11, is it not? I have learned in whatever situation I am, he's in a dark dungy prison cell in Rome. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We will never be content unless the God of Scripture is the God of our reality. I will grumble as I have been grumbling this past week because grumbling, as an old Puritan put it, is simply the scum of discontent. As I struggle with my own discontent, the grumbling and the murmuring that will arise, and I quickly understand it is because in that moment the God of Scripture is merely the God of my imagination. He is not the God of my reality. And number seven, and with this we will conclude, when the God of Scripture is the God of our reality, we will rejoice. And it takes us back to where we were moments ago. Make a joyful no noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. And so, our God, we do give you thanks this day. Despite what is going on in our lives, despite the struggles, the obstacles, the problems, the pains and the sorrows, in the midst of it all, we do give thanks as we celebrate that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights who knows no change and in whom there is no variation or shadow of change. We do praise you. We do worship you. We do thank you for your word. We praise you for this instruction this day. 
And give us understanding, we ask it. And above all else, by your Spirit, implant this word deep within our hearts. May it bear fruit for our good and for your eternal glory. And we ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.